Bibles, if you would, and turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 18 through 31 today. Um, we were gone last week, so I'm going to review just a little bit since it's been a couple weeks since we talked about the first part of 1 Corinthians. We said there was a tension from the beginning to the end of the, this letter of Paul. And it starts off in the very first few verses. Um, they are located spiritually in verses 1 and 2 in Christ. Um, that's all that he is for us. And then at the same time, in those same verses, verses 2 and 4, they are also physically located in Corinth. Uh, that's the tension, to be physically in Corinth, but spiritually in Christ, to know how to live by faith and not by sight, to know how to live like a Christian and not a Corinthian. Those two locations are actually polar opposites of one another in almost every possible way. And when you read this text, you're going to find out as the book unfolds just how difficult it was for them. So they asked, I want to ask you the question this morning, how is it possible for believers to live in Christ and in Corinth at the same time? Let's make it relevant to us. How do you live in Jesus and in Jersey at the same time? Well, we said last time, a couple weeks ago, that it's only possible when you were called into a fellowship. Um, verse 9 makes it pretty clear that Christians, not just in Corinth but everywhere, are called into the fellowship of God with his son, Jesus Christ. And so the Corinthians were called, verse 2, verse 9, verse 26, they were called by God and sanctified. They were actually even called saints. Although you think about saints, you wouldn't think of the Corinthians if you put a moral tag on it, but saints is a term that obviously carries more weight than just your morality. It's your position in Christ. And so they were Christians. They were far from being perfect Christians like each and every one of us. We call them fixer-uppers, and that's what all of us are. But we need that fellowship. We need the fellowship vertically with God, and we need the fellowship horizontally with each other. And so I would say to you this morning, based on that text, that you need to be part of a community. You cannot live in Christ and in Corinth successfully as God would want you to by yourself. Truthfully, obviously, we need God. But the reality is that we also need each other. We need both the vertical and the horizontal fellowship. And Paul goes on to say in the text we looked at in verses 1 through 17 that that fellowship, the basis of it, is the name of the Lord Jesus. He said that's true vertically, verse 2, when he says the fellowship is based on the name of the Lord Jesus and all he's done. But he also said our horizontal fellowship is the exact same because he says the same language in verse 10. When he talks about their divisions and schisms, he says it ought not to be. They ought to be united. They ought to be one. And the basis of the horizontal unity that they should have was also Jesus. And so horizontal fellowship, we might say splinters. It begins to fragment when we have or think we have the vertical part right but the horizontal part wrong. See, if you're not living both of them out on the same basis... What happens is, is that our conduct toward one another can become more like Corinth than Christ. And in this case, they were living out the wrong identity. The in Corinth part was far outweighing the in Christ part, and it was showing up because they weren't treating each other well, and there were schisms, and there were divisions, and there was disunity. And what you and I need to understand 
is that's not just the identity of Christians in Corinth. That's the identity of all of us who know the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior. See, for you and I, our identity is not based on what we are in Hamilton, but what we are in heaven. Paul would want us to know, every single one of us here today, that we are part of a bigger story, bigger than Hamilton, bigger than New Jersey, bigger than the United States. We are in a cosmic story, a story that is in Christ. So how can we live in Jesus and in Jersey simultaneously? Well, here's what it is not. We don't accomplish that because of our leaders, although God uses them. That unity and its basis is not based on our labels of who we are as a church, all those, those are important. It's not our leaders, it's not our labels, it's our Lord that the basis of it is at. And we need to always keep that in mind. We belong to him. And as you look around today in the auditorium, you'll see that we are very different in so many ways. We are different in our backgrounds, our language, our skin color, our text, our social status. So how can we keep from fragmenting? Well, here's what he says. That's not the basis of our unity. The basis of our unity is the Lord Jesus Christ and all that he is for us. And when we forget that, here's what happens. We, our church becomes fragmented into interest groups. And by that I mean we begin to treat church like a commodity. It's kind of a possession that we have and we haggle over it when it doesn't go the way that we want it to. And if we're not careful, we become consumer Christians instead of contributors. Consumers come to be served. Contributors come to serve. See, consumers are, they feel entitled, whereas contributors feel grateful. Consumers point the fingers when there are problems, but contributors Get in and say, what's the answer to this problem and how can I help? Consumers focus on their preferences, whereas contributors focus on the needs of others. But Paul wants to add to that today. And he wants to add it in this way. He says, the community of God depends entirely upon Jesus Christ and his cross and him being crucified. We are called, and he's going to show us in this text and what I want to show you today, we are called to be a cross-shaped community, not a Corinth-shaped community. And so in this text, please look at it with me, there's a cluster of words in 1 Corinthians that are only found in chapter 1 and chapter 2. They're not used anywhere else in this text, which means Paul was very intentional in what he used because he's laying a foundation for how he's going to address all the other problem issues in this church. In verses one, chapter 1, verses 17 and 18, he talks about the cross twice. He mentions the word crucified of Jesus in verse 13, 23, chapter 2, verse 2, and chapter 2, verse 8. Six times in a brief amount of verses, he uses this cruciform language, this cross-shaped language to describe the message that they preach, the gospel, the church, how they relate to one another. What he wants us to know that the message of the gospel is the cross. The model of the church's fellowship is also the cross. And so let me pick up where I left off in verse 17, which reads this. We don't preach the gospel with words of eloquent wisdom. Why? Because there's a danger in that. And the danger is this, that I empty the cross of its power. 
Let me tell you, when the cross is not powerful in a church, it's divided. People are segmented. They treat the church as a consumer product. And they have their own interest groups and their own agendas. He says, see, that's the sign of a crossless church that has rendered its power empty. And so he does this little contrast. He talks about the words of eloquent wisdom in 17. And then immediately in the next verse, he connects it with the words, if you look there in the text, the word of the cross. Because can I tell you, they are antithetical. They are completely opposite of one another. The words of man's eloquent wisdom, that was what was true in Corinth. They were a Greek society. Wisdom to them was the articulation in eloquent ways. The content really didn't matter. It was how you communicated it. And Paul says, see, the church is the opposite. We are not merely externalism. We are not just the trappings that would attract people. We have a message. We have a content to what we're all about here. And he says, and those two things are completely the opposite. And so throughout the rest of the text, all the way down through verse 31, he's going to tell us just how different those two ways of thinking and serving and ministering are through all kinds of radical contrast. Let me just show you. He says there are those who are perishing and those who are being saved. He talks about the wisdom of the world in contrast with the wisdom of God. The power of the world, the power of God. Wisdom and foolishness. Power and weakness. What is God and what is man's. Saved Jews and Gentiles, unsaved Jews and Gentiles. And what he's going to come down to saying is you have to choose. God brought everyone here today to choose, to choose by which way that you will live, in the power and wisdom of the cross or the power and the wisdom of culture. We need a cross. And someone told me when we put up the banners for this year, you know, Pastor Walker, why don't we have a cross in our church? And I thought, well, maybe we need to put one up. But we need a cross in our church, I think, far more importantly in another way. More than on our walls, we need the cross in our wisdom. See, we need a cross in our church not to put around our necks, to put around our relationships. We need a cross in our church not for decoration of ourselves, but for denial of ourselves. So what's the difference between a cruciform church, a cross-shaped church, and a Corinthian church or a culture-shaped church? What would it look like if Faith Baptist Church was a cruciform church? Well, there'd be three marks of it. Number one, you can see it in the text for yourself. A cruciform community lives by a different wisdom. We choose to live by a cross-shaped wisdom that is in opposition to and radically alternate to a culture-shaped wisdom. Let me show you what I mean. He says, the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of God are different. And if you would, just circle them in your text. Verse 18 starts with the word for. See it? Verse 18 has it. Verse 19 starts that way. Verse 21 starts that way. Verse 26 starts that way. That's the structure. He says, Hear me, let me tell you about the wisdom of the world, the words of the eloquent wisdom of the world. Let me tell you why. Here's the reasons. Four, 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 four. Here's why. The wisdom of the cross is completely antithetical and different to that. And I want you to know that when Paul talks about wisdom or unity, and Pastor Walker is trying to say that that ought to mark our church, that the unity is not merely for the sake of God's people not bickering, 
It's not for the name of expediency. It's not so that we can practice human tolerance of one another. The basis for it is the cross and its wisdom. That's the basis of our unity. It's not a plea by Paul saying, can't you guys in Corinth just get along? Rather, it is grounded in our identity. Because when God's people are disunified, it is a reflection that the cross may not be as powerful as it really is. When people look inside the church and they see interest groups and fractured and division and schisms, they begin to wonder, hey, how is that group of people any different than any other group of people in the world? So when they are saying in their text, I am of Paul, I am of Paulus, I am of Peter, we fast forward to the 21st century, someone might say, I am of Calvin, I am of Luther, I am of Wesley, I am of this name of this TV preacher, and I am of this guy who wrote this book. And this is, see, when we do that, we are using world's wisdom. And here's what Paul says, the basis of our unity can never be that type of thinking. The basis of our unity is Jesus and his cross, death, and resurrection. And he's so serious about this that he begins this text with two Old Testament quotations. One in verse 19 where he quotes Isaiah 29, 14. And then he ends the text with another Old Testament quotation, which is Jeremiah 9, 22, and 23. Don't look at them or turn to them, but let me just tell you, I read the text. And here's what they both have in common. Both of these verses or texts in the Old Testament depict God as one who acts to judge and save his people in ways that define human wisdom and expectation. In other words, God is going to come, the text says, and he's going to deliver his people and destroy his enemies, but it's not going to be in the way that you think. Paul is going to critique the root problem of the first Corinthians, or I said the first Corinthians issues of division, and he's going to tell them this. The problem is, is that you're boasting in human wisdom. The Corinthian wisdom was taking precedent over cross wisdom. But here's what he says, but I'm going to deliver you, and I did deliver you, not with human wisdom, but another kind of wisdom, another kind of wisdom that subverts that kind of wisdom. And so he's going to tell them the gospel that saved you and the same gospel that unites you is not just another volume of religiosity or knowledge. It's not a sickly, uh, or a slickly packaged philosophy or scheme for giving you a better life. Instead, God's message of salvation is completely different. When it comes to bring destruction, as it says in verse 19, and deliverance, here's what it does. In fact, this impacts everyone seated here today. The wisdom of the cross divides humanity into two categories. And counter to what our world says, those two categories are not black and white. They are not rich and poor. They are not Democrat and Republican. They are saved and perishing. See, the world wants to divide us up in all kinds of different ways to keep us from being unified. But God says, see, there's really only one division in his mind. Saved, verse 18, and perishing. And there are two present participles, meaning that what's going on and what the cross is doing, dividing the world right now, is happening even as I speak this morning. 
And depending on which group you are in will determine how you perceive everything in this world. So if you are in Jersey, you will see life and every issue in it one way. If you are in Jesus, it'll be completely different than that. Let me give you examples on a number of current topics. Sexuality. If you are in Jersey, sex is fine with anyone, anytime, as long as they consent. If you are in Jesus, sex is only in a covenant marriage between those who are saved. Marriage between a man and a woman for life, that's the in Jesus viewpoint. But if you're in Jersey, marriage can be between a woman and a man, a man and a man, and a woman and a man for not a life, but for a while. Quite different. In Jesus, gender is fixed. In Jersey, gender is fluid. In Jesus, abortion is about a woman's rights. But in Jesus, it's about a woman's rebellion and a baby's rights. See, in Jersey, racism is a skin issue. In Jesus, it is a sin issue. In Jersey, the universe started with a big bang. But in Jesus, the universe started with a big God. In Jersey, you are God. In Jesus, he is God. And I could go on and on. Because, of course, God's wisdom is usually the complete reverse of man's wisdom. And if you are in Jesus, you will look at the world and you'll think, Oh my word, how can they think those things? How can they think that that is right? But if you're in Jersey and you look over at Christians, you're going to say, What is wrong with these people? Aren't they progressive? Can't they stop being archaic and ancient? That's why Paul goes on to say this. God's wisdom to the world, to the Greek people, it is, and here's the Greek word, moria. It is foolishness. In other words, they would say, what a bunch of morons. Literally. They would look at our beliefs about marriage and sexuality and gender and abortion. and They would say, it is the height of absurdity. But the cross changes everything, doesn't it? The world's wisdom, Jesus says when he quotes Isaiah 29, it will be destroyed and the little world is annihilated. God has exploded in Jesus. Common sense from a worldly standard and all human standards of evaluation have now been completely overturned. And Paul uses a word for this in verse 23. He says, the cross is a scandalon, translated stumbling block. And that's why people don't accept Christianity, and that's why they would like to extinguish it. And that's why less and less people are coming to church all the time, because the cross and its anti-world wisdom, or its unwisdom, as some would want to put it, is not logical to them. It's not rationally persuasive, but it is the wisdom of God, and to them it's a scandal. So whose wisdom do you live by? Is it cruciform or culture-shaped? See, churches have gone away from the wisdom of God. And so now we have churches that attract people by the entertainment and the concert and the lights flashing and the fog on the stage and the rock band concert. I was told recently of a church that when you're 40 and older, the music's so loud that if you're that age, when you come in, they give you earplugs for the service. Whose wisdom is that? 
when we attract people by placating them, when we dumb down doctrine to get people in so we believe the minimal that's possible, the lowest common denominator spiritually, we've reverted to the wisdom of the world. Whose wisdom prevails in your conflicts in your home, in our church? When you have a problem, a disagreement, how does it handled? See, whose wisdom is what takes the forefront when you make moral choices? When your children decide if they're going to date, the business ethics you practice at your job, the work ethic that you have when you go and come to work every single day. What is the wisdom that is used in those situations? How you use your money? What's really important to your family? What takes priority? What's number one on your calendar? See, we choose wisdom. It's not just this ethereal thing that only has to do with major doctrines like salvation. No, it filters down into the everyday deeds of life cross changes everything. But a cruciform community lives by a different wisdom, the wisdom that is cross-shaped, not culture-shaped. Secondly, a cruciform community lives by a different power. A cross-shaped power, not a culture-shaped power. See, the text says, well, Greeks seek wisdom, but Jewish people, they seek a sign or they want a sign. You see, for the Jewish person in Jesus' day, and we forget this because we wear crosses around our neck, that the cross was the most horrible thing that you could imagine. It was a tool of torture and utter shame and agony. To be a capital criminal was one of the worst things that could ever happen to you, no matter if you were Jew or Greek in the first century. And to be put up on the cross was a sign of being powerless, And Paul's going around, as we are going around, teaching that the good news is that this shame-filled, disrespected, capital crime or criminal Jewish carpenter is the Messiah who saved the world by his death and his weakness. See, it didn't go over well with Jews. You know why? Because for a long time, they had been under the burden of oppression. They had been under the thumb of Romans. And they were looking for like a Moses figure who in his great signs of power delivered them out of the Egyptian bondage with great signs and wonders and power. And they thought Messiah would be a power figure like that. So when Jesus comes and they see him feed the multitudes and and has the power to exercise demon and heal people, they're thinking, finally, this guy. But when he doesn't use it to overthrow the Romans, when he doesn't use his power like they would want him to do, They reject him. Can I fast forward? Because in America, it hasn't changed. We are a power over people. When people get in our way, we simply run them over in our position at our jobs. It is our rights, according to our Constitution, to stand up for what is ours. We will get revenge if we need to. And it filters down into the church at times, doesn't it? I don't get my way at church, I'll power over people, I'll start a conflict, I'll gossip, I'll slander, I'll withdraw my money, I'll stop coming to services. And the only cross is the one that comes out of their mouth in a statement that says, they wish they never crossed me. How did Jesus solve conflicts? Can I give you three examples that you know? It's not that Jesus didn't have power, because can I tell you, he had all power. And that is just the problem, isn't it? 
You and I would probably do more to power over people if we could. If we had the power and we had the authority and the ability, if we could call 12 legions of angels, we would. But Peter's in the garden with his master and the soldiers try to arrest Jesus and he takes out his sword and tries to cut the guy's head off. The guy ducks, he only gets his ear. And Jesus does not applaud the power over move because Peter is just like the people who came to get him. And Jesus says, that's not my disciples. See, I'm not a power over king. And so he reaches up and heals the guy's ear and restores it and says, if you live by the sword, you will die by the sword because that's the wisdom of the world, Peter. That's the power of the world. Do what I say or I will force you to. The Roman detachment wasn't just a few soldiers. It was 300 soldiers. They didn't come to get Jesus with a handful of people. They came to get him and his 12 disciples with 300. And they came with swords and weapons. They all come and they find Jesus and he takes out his weapon too. But it is not a shiny blade. It is a word, a word of God. And he says simply the name of his father, I am. And every one of them fall back on the ground. He has the power. He could say the word and they would have been annihilated. But he doesn't use his power in that way. When he is crucified at Calvary, the religious leaders power over and say, Jesus, here's the wisdom of our day. You come down from the cross and we'll believe you're Messiah because now you're going to show some power. Because if you come down from that cross, you're going to take it out on your enemies. I know it. And that's what you should be doing. And Jesus says in the biggest power under move ever, he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. See, it's the problem, isn't it? That God's kind of power doesn't look like the world's kind of power. In fact, it looks weak. It looks deficient. It looks like it can't do anything. In fact, it looks like failure. Michael Card wrote a beautiful song many years ago, El Shaddai. And in it, he has this little line. Your awesome work was done through the frailty of your son. That's the power of God. See, the cross of Jesus transforms our definition of power. And so when the Bible says that you are the head of your homes, fathers, it doesn't mean now things are going to run right. Um, my wife will finally know what it means. To... No, it's not a dictatorship. It is loving sacrifice because a Husband who is the head of his home is to be like Christ who's the head of this church. And here's the phrase, who loved and gave himself for her. Headship means sacrificial. And see, today, women don't want to submit to their husbands because they have this definition of power. And if my husband is over me and I submit to him, then he'll take full advantage of that. And so they don't want to. But submission, powering under, is completely different when the one powering over you is like Jesus. It is a mind-blowing paradox, isn't it? 2 Corinthians 13, 4 reads, For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak, Paul says in him, but we will be with him by the power of God. See, Jesus' weakness as defining power 
and his powering under is not just for him, it's for us. Real power is weakness. Real wisdom to the world looks foolish. And so I wrote down some things over the years that I've learned when you power under. It means this. I don't have to be right in an argument, but I do have to be righteous. I don't have to get my way when people disagree with me, but I do have to follow Jesus' way. I don't have to treat others like they have treated me. When I power under, I can treat them far better than they have treated me. See, I can power under because I have a different kind of power. Not the power of the sword, not the power of force, not the power of manipulation, but I have the power of patience. I don't have to be quick to condemn when I believe someone has done something wrong. I, don't ha- I have the power of love, which according to 1 Corinthians 13, believes the best at all times until proven otherwise. I have the power of forgiveness, which is not easily offended and quick to forgive. See, that's a different kind of power. That kind of power is what keeps churches unified. So a cruciform church has a cross-shaped wisdom. It has a cross-shaped power. And has, lastly, a cross-shaped calling Can you look at verse 26? Can you consider your calling? Listen to this, brothers. See that? He says in verse 10, brothers. He says in verse 11, brothers. Verse 26, he is so enamored with this statement that he says it 27 times in 1 Corinthians because he wants them to know this, no matter how you differ, no matter how many divisions have come up, here's how you need to settle them. But in all of this, remember the umbrella that keeps us together. We are family in God. All of us. And so he says, but what kind of family are they? Three times he uses the little phrase, not many. Three times he also uses the phrase, and God has chosen. Three times he says, and here's the reason, so that. He's good on threes in this little section. Because he's repeating something over and over again because he wants to burn it into your mind and in my mind. That here's our calling According to worldly standards, we are not a community, a cruciform community that is filled with really educated people at the highest levels. We are not, by and large, not many, not that there aren't some, we are not a group of people who are, by and large, millionaires. We are not of noble birth. That's not who we are. And in the first century, it meant this. God did not call Caesar to represent the gospel. He didn't call the Roman senators to represent the gospel. You know who God put in this cruciform community? Ordinary people like you and me. And so God is filled by his design based on what the cross is all about. At Faith Baptist Church, he has filled us this, this ministry with teachers and nurses and bus drivers and police officers and construction workers and receptionists. We do not have the movers and shakers that are changing the United States primarily in this culture, in this community. We have 20 different nationalities so many different languages spoke here and backgrounds and people groups. All of us are called by God. And that's what keeps us together. We are a cru- cruciform community that is a family, despite all that separates us, beside, despite all of our sins and our weaknesses, 
And God chose it that way. We are not built from impressive materials. He says, I have chosen the weak things, the things that are despised. I didn't take the greatest materials to make the church. And I did it on purpose, God says. You know why? Because we are to reflect the weakness demonstrated that is really power in the cross. So when things get done and people's lives are changed and we have an impact on this community, people won't be able to say, well, yeah, it's not surprising because the mayor goes to your church and blah, 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 and you have, yeah, and you have $48 million in the bank. Who couldn't make a difference? That's not us. We're just a bunch of ordinary people whose lives have been radically altered and changed by the cross of Jesus. And he says, I did this out of nothing, verses 29 through 31. Ex nihilo, like God created the universe and the world when there was nothing, he took nothing and made everything. He said, here's what I've done. I've taken a bunch of nothings, a bunch of nobodies, and I've made everything that I'm going to do in this world with them. Can I say it nicely? That's you and me. We are nothing and nobody apart from Jesus and his cross. But he has made us in him to be something. Why? Why did he do it that way? So that no one would glory or boast in his presence. That's why. See, the cross changes what we brag about, what our boast is in. It's not in my talent. I'm not boasting how great I am mechanically, because you know that'd be a big lie. We're not boasting about, hey, the millions of dollars and this facility and all of No, that's not who we are. Our boast is in Jesus, isn't it? Our boast is in a crucified Savior that has risen from the dead. That's our boast. And if anything is accomplished at this church, or ever will be accomplished at this church, it'll all be because of him. And I'm not ashamed of that, are you? It's our boast. Not our wisdom, Jeremiah 9. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. Let not those who are noble birth boast about that. But let them boast in this, God says, that you understand and know me. That's the boast of Faith Baptist Church. That God in his mercy has revealed himself to us and we know him. If you don't know him, would you join him today? You're in Hamilton, but are you in Christ? If not, would you come? And if you are in Christ, would you join us here at Faith Baptist Church? Join him, and by doing so, join us so that we can boast in him that the whole world might give him the glory that he deserves. Let's pray. In just a moment, we're going to sing a closing hymn, and then we're going to welcome some people, deacons, into our church membership this morning as we close. The song we're going to sing is 310, Lead Me to Calvary. See, we go to the cross to get saved, but can I tell you, we need to go back every day to get sanctified. We're a fixer-upper people, and we need that to keep the unity. Father, help us. You have created us with diversity, but it's a diversity with unity. And that unity can be no other place other than Jesus Christ and him crucified.
May it be our message. May it be our model. May it be the means to all that we do that you alone might be our boast, that you alone might get the glory. For it's in Jesus' matchless name we pray. Amen.